There we go. Hi everyone, it's Artie from the Human Chapters. I'll tell you a bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with a past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to tell. An acknowledgement to country, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land which now comprises Greater Shepparton. We pay respect to their tribal elders, past and present and emerging. We celebrate their continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today, we are going to be talking to um, Atul, and Atul um, is talking to us from the UK. We are going to talk about his chapter, Decolonizing the Curriculum. So on to you, Atul, you can introduce yourself. Yeah, uh, first of all, Aarti, thank you very much. And I love that introduction where you're talking about the place where you are and the history and the ancestry and acknowledging the ancestors of the place. Um, unfortunately, uh, as you know, and that's probably why you're doing this series, there's a lot of modern history which has forgotten that, which has exploited cultures and traditions and demolished cultures and traditions as well uh, because they, they were inferior or seen to be inferior. Mm -hmm. And now we are beginning to realize that actually that was wrong, that some of these cultures were very wise, that they were very simple, they were very holistic in that they embraced people, nature, animals. They were not just about power and control and domination and dominion. They were about inclusion. They were about respect. Uh, they were about... Um, you know, respect not just for other human beings, but for all living beings, for nature, for the environment. They were about simplicity and non-materialism. I mean, you know, the Aboriginal culture, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you were to ask what, where was money in the Aboriginal culture, there was no money. Mm -hmm. There was no role for money or currency in that, mm -hmm. in that tradition, right? But now our lives are completely ruled by money. So uh, where do I begin, Arthi? Uh, I would, like you, I was born in Kenya. Uh, I was born in Mombasa in Kenya. Kenya was a British colony. Uh, I was born a couple of years before independence, before Kenya became independent. And educated in Kenya. And then at the age of 18, I came to the London School of Economics in Britain mm -hmm. to study for an undergraduate degree. Uh, in uh, economics and accounting. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I became a professional accountant. Uh, and then I felt something was missing in my life. And I was quite passionate about education and teaching. Yeah. So then I started an education career by becoming a, a, a lecturer uh, at uh, Middlesex University and doing a PhD at the London School of Economics, where I was a research fellow. Mm -hmm. um, and then after graduating and completing my PhD, 
Uh, I then taught at various uh, universities in the United Kingdom, and I was a visiting professor at the University of Maryland in Washington, DC. So I have had an international career in education, um, although I started out as a practicing accountant. Yeah. Uh, now, in terms of the chapter that uh, you wish to discuss today, which I find so fascinating. And in fact, I'm working on, on it in an active way right now, and I'm finding it so interesting. Uh, there is, after Black Lives Matter, there is more of a push towards saying that our educational systems also embed discrimination, you know, and they, are, they, they, they may not be very overt sometimes, but in subtle ways, the histories of different peoples and cultures, their traditions uh, are not respected, they're not acknowledged. And at the same time, the damage done by the West, uh, but Britain, where I am, my country in particular, on the world has been huge. And, uh, but that damage is not just physical, it's also uh, educational and intellectual. So when we are decolonizing the curriculum, what we're saying is we want to address the intellectual damage in our education system. So the kind of colonization of the mind that is embedded in the systems of education all over the world need to be reversed. Mm. Absolutely. So what got you interested in this topic of decolonizing the curriculum? Okay, uh, a, a lovely question, Arti. I was brought up, you could say, in uh, I what I would call deep culture. I was immersed in deep culture. In Mombasa, one of the first Jain temples outside India was opened in 1963. Mm -hmm. And I was born a couple of years before that. And my father was one of the major community leaders of that temple. Yeah. So my whole life revolved around deep culture. Yeah. And what do I mean by deep culture? Jainism, like your culture, is one of the oldest living cultures of the world. You know, for example, we talk about Aboriginal culture, but Aboriginal culture has been so damaged and so devastated in so many ways that the threads are, have become lost, you know, the cultural threads. Uh, in contrast, compared to many other cultures of the world, you know, including Greek culture, uh, Egyptian culture, the Jain culture has survived. Mm. And, uh, and the more I study it, and now I'm studying it more as a scientist because I've been trained as a scientist, right? But as growing up, I was experiencing the culture. I was deeply immersed in it. And it was a very joyful childhood, childhood you know? So much activity, so much festivals, so much music, um, and just happiness, just happiness. Mombasa, actually is an island. And one of the things, when you look at chapters, 
people born in islands are quite unique because islands become very closed communities. You know, it's not easy to escape an island. So the people living in there have to get along with one another. And being a port city, Mombasa was an immigrant yeah. entry port to Africa mm. for immigrants from many parts of the world, but especially Asia, right? So therefore, there was a lot of kind of Arabic influence, uh, Indian influence, and other immigrants coming in. And these people, a bit like, you know, we hear a lot about the New York story of immigrants uh, fleeing persecution in Europe to be, uh, you know, suddenly to be free and to create a new life uh, of freedom and liberation. You got the Statue of Liberty. Mombasa, Mombasa was, if you now look at history, was a bit like the Statue of Liberty for Indians, not necessarily escaping repression, repression or persecution, but escaping famine and poverty, you know, etc. So, you know, it was at that juncture I was born. And because my father, my father had polio, you know, he was disabled. But his passion for culture and community was so deep that he would work seven days a week. He was literally a full-time community volunteer yeah. for the community. Little did he realize that the kinds of work he did have now become really historic. Because if I look at a fourth generation person from Mombasa, mm. you still see those Jain culture in them. And the women carried that culture with that, them wherever they migrated to afterwards. Many are in UK, some are still in Mombasa, some are in Nairobi and other parts of Kenya. But that culture and the deep love of, 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 of Jain culture, and let me tell you a little bit about the Jain culture to those of your viewers who don't know. You have all heard of Mahatma Gandhi as, and he's celebrated as one of the greatest leaders of the world in the 20th century. Mahatma Gandhi's guru was a Jain, a Jain merchant called Srimad Rajchandra. He writes about, he's devoted several chapters to him in his autobiography. So this whole idea of nonviolence and civil disobedience, civil disobedience, satyagraha, many of the philosophical underpinnings of his leadership came from the Jain culture. And essentially the Jain culture is a culture of respect for all living beings. Yeah. Now that respect for all living beings was not developed in reaction to climate change or pandemic, or it was developed thousands of years ago as the right way to live. Yeah. Yeah. So it was not a panic reaction. Oh, these viruses are spreading. So we must look after our animals. Oh, these forests are being destroyed and there's carbon, you know, ozone in the atmosphere is being destroyed. So therefore we need to, it's not like that. We actually saw much earlier that the right way to live is not only to respect other human beings mm. but to respect all living beings and nature nature was seen, seen as a living breathing 
being, you know, or well, number of so trees, plants, etc. So now, as I discovered as a scientist, you know, as I became a scientist and educated in the West, of course, none of these theories are in my textbooks when I'm learning. Uh, nobody even, in fact, the, the normal question I used to get is, how do you spell the word Jain? Mm. And that, that question still remains today. Yeah. How do you, including from educated scholars and academics, they know very little about one of the oldest living cultures of the world, a culture which influenced Mahatma Gandhi, right? So the question, how do you spell the word Jain? So as I started to investigate more and more, I actually discovered that my own science was in many ways much more wiser and profound than the science I'm learning in the famous London School of Economics. Mm. Yeah. So that got me into this journey of, of trying uh, to bring out that science and showing that sustainability is not a new idea mm. and sustainability, which is now a big buzzword that we need to live in harmony with the planet. You know, quite often we have to be very careful because a lot of people are developing these new ideas to make profit out of them. Mm. And it's a, it's a fashionable thing. It's a way for consultants to make money, etc. But actually, when you look deeper down, at ancient cultures, they have known this for a long time and they have developed ways of living in harmony with nature, which we as a society should learn from mm. and should want to learn from and should share with others. Yeah, absolutely. I hope, I hope I'm making sense, uh, Arti, and it's yeah. kind of... Uh, along the lines that your audience would be able to understand, because do stop me uh, if not, you know. Sure. And um, Atul, I noticed you mentioned, or you've been referring to Jain as a culture rather than a religion. Could you explain that? Because to me, I have always thought about Jainism as being more of an organized religion as opposed to a culture. Let's, yeah, let's unpack. Very, very, Arti, very good question. Very important question. And my short answer to that is this idea of a boundary between one and the other mm -hmm. is also a colonial idea, right? right? Uh, so the colonies, for example, uh, you know, when uh, the partition of India was done, it was the British who drew a line between India and Pakistan. Literally, they took a map out and drew a line, right? Mm -hmm. And they created a border. So much of world conflict today still comes out of those artificial lines, right? Mm -hmm. So religion and culture have always been fused in so many traditions of the world, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, in a way you cannot tell when one stops and when another starts. I mean, I did, I saw your beautiful interview of your mother and your grandmother. Yeah. And when I looked at that interview, I could see that they had brought that culture of peace. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, the kind of, they, whether or not they pray every day 
or go to the temple every day. Those values were very deep. And there, I can see those values deep in you as well. I mean, this whole uh, project that you have embarked on, you're trying to bring out the stories of other people, Aarti, right? Yeah. And that is actually Jain, because the Jains, one of the central philosophies of the Jains is Anekant. Anekant means that no one has the, uh, you know, has the mastery of truth. Truth depends on different perspectives, you know, and, uh, and we need to respect the perspectives from which different people come. So we need to work with difference. We need to embrace difference and we need to learn and grow through difference, right? Um, so, so in that sense, that is the culture. And that is why also, look, Arthur, you grew up in East Africa and now look, you know, in Australia, you seem to have, you know, almost like fit like a hand to glove, right? Yeah. So this idea of migration and assimilation has been so easy for us because of that culture and that mindset that we have been brought up in. So we, we are adjust very easily, we adapt very easily, and we embrace very easily as well. Right? Yeah. So I think that those are the qualities which come from a combination of our religion, our community, our upbringing, yeah. and our culture. Uh, now, if to answer your question personally, growing up as a child, the temple was my playground as well as my playground. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, I the memories I have of that time. It was it was a four acre plot in the center of town. Think about that, right? Think about Sydney Harbour, mm -hmm. and a, a Jain temple, four acres next to Sydney Harbour. Okay. The whole of Australia, how, how can this be? You know, how can, how can we have another religion here at the center of our town? But in Africa, in Africa, we were allowed to be ourselves. Mm. And not only were we allowed to be ourselves, the, look, the Africans were so impressed by our culture mm. that they wanted to learn from it. They didn't want to suppress it, undermine it, or push it, right? Yeah. So that's what we mean by decolonizing the curriculum. That actually, when you bring out cultures mm. and encourage people to study their own histories and their own cultures, mm -hmm. they become more rounded children, more rounded adults. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, through that understanding and knowledge of their own culture and religion, they are and traditions, they are able to give more to the world and be more responsible, be more accountable, be more sustainable. Mm, absolutely. And it's so it's so interesting you explaining it in that way because I so frequently when during my conversations with people, I'm not I'm not overly religious. I'm not someone I believe in the higher power. And I frequently find myself saying I'd much rather be or try to be a good person because that's also it takes an active role right try to be a good person where you can um, rather than pray to God and then go back to doing you know very much the idea of practice what you preach kind of situation and I so frequently go I think it's in today's world it's 
more important to be a good person within that active lifestyle um, than, I don't know, showing people you're praying or showing people you're religious and then going back to life and doing whatever it is, good or bad, you know, and that's subjective, I know, but that's where I had culture and I had religion in two separate entities. And of course, there's a gray area, but it was very much for me, there was a bit of a distinction between the two. Yeah. Yeah. But could, it, could it be, Aarti, that the way you were educated in, you know, you were, when you're a child, you don't, you don't know what yeah. is right and wrong. You're taught what is right and wrong, right? I mean, let's take again the colonial history, uh, you know, of empire, right? Land today, you know, house prices all over the world are skyrocketing, mm. right? Yeah. And people are becoming almost mortgage slaves as a result. You know, they, they're whole, you know, they're having to take a very big mortgage and then they have to work all their life to pay that mortgage off. Right? Yeah. Empire, empire was built on grabbing land without paying anything for it. How? By just a few thousand soldiers and superior weaponry. Mm. Right? So it was built on deceit, on fraud, mm. on uh, aggression mm. and conquest, right? Yeah. Now, when we look at those as ethical values, right? Yeah. Mm. You can see that in contrast, cultures like the Jain culture, which are built on kindness, on compassion, on respect, mm -hmm. on commu on family, on community, on uh, 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 assimilation, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and helping one another rather than conquering one another. Mm -hmm. Power, power, the idea of power was not power over others but power over the self. Yeah. Now, this is a real nugget that, Arti, I want to just share with you on this chapter. The word Jain comes from the word Jina. Jina means inner conqueror or inner victor. So conqueror over human vices like greed, ego, anger, yeah. or deceit, yeah? So in a way, our idea of conquest was not conquest of the outer, but conquest of the inner, right? Yeah. Now that, I've not, I, I've not come across any culture which has that clarity about decolonization, yeah. that decolonization starts with the self, Right. and the values and ethics of the self. Right. So I see a huge opportunity after Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. You know, there are universities all over the world are beginning to talk about decolonizing the curriculums. None of them yeah. refer to Jainism or they can't even spell the word. I mean, it's, 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 I, I find it absolutely shocking, uh, the level of discussion and debate. But here we are yeah. with a culture which starts from decolonizing the mind. 
And I'd like to share with your uh, listeners uh, and viewers some of the kind of work I have done. I mean, one of the books I've written is on uh, Jane economics. Uh, it's published by Routledge and avail available worldwide on Amazon. Uh, it is called uh, Jainism and Ethical Finance, a Timeless Business Model. So here is an example. I mean, I've spent 30 years researching this. My co-author is Aidan Rankin. Mm. And um, here is an example of a practical way in which we have a very new and different economic system, which is sustainable, and has been lived and practiced for thousands of years before climate change or before this whole uh, kind of disaster of environment that we are experiencing, right? So here is a blueprint which people, which your listeners can uh, read uh, at their time, yeah? Uh, another example um, is, yeah, sorry. Sorry, just before you move on, tell us a yeah. bit more about that book in terms of sustainability or a little bit of what a summary of the book. Um, okay, sure. Yeah. My, so, my is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, that, that's a very, again, I'd be very happy to, I mean, finance is a very important subject taught all over the world. And also at a practical level, it's very important that uh, everyone understands a little bit about finance. I ju we just spoke about the mortgaged, uh, how, how we've all become mortgage slaves, you know. Yeah. But we need to understand finance. Now, the Jains are actually uh, very good at business and finance, as you will know. And all over the world, we have succeeded. Uh, also in the accounting profession, we have accountants all over the world who, who are James and they're doing very, they're very good at accounting. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's not just a modern thing. It's throughout history. We've been chief uh, uh, treasurers to various kingdoms uh, in Indian history, you know, uh, and finance ministers and chancellors in our history. So leadership and finance. Now the book shows how the James approach finance, you know, and one of the core aspects of finance for the Jains is honesty and integrity. And alongside honesty and integrity is trust, right? So if you are a finance expert or a finance advisor, you must act in the best interest of the customer, not your own interest. Mm. And the chances are that if you are honest and you give good advice, they will come back and come back and they will tell others about it. And I see this happening today in Britain and the Jane, many Jains, I'm not saying all, but many Jains have a very distinctive culture about finance and financial advice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that is, uh, uh, that is unique. Another aspect is to do with greed and selfishness. Now, the, the, the core curriculum of business education is profit maximization, yeah? Now, we have never, ever emphasized profit maximization, even though we are some of the most successful business communities in the world. Mm. Our focus has been on quality service, 
quality products, right? And uh, customer satisfaction. And then, and a kind of long-term attitude towards the business. So it's not a short-term, take your money and run. Yeah. But it's my, I want the, it's an intergenerational business. I want my business to be there when I retire so I can hand it over to my children and my grandchildren, etc. And that has happened, by the way. We have several families who have 200-year-old, 300-year-old businesses, right? So, so this idea of intergenerational equity is also embraced. And, and if, we, if we treat our business as a service, then we don't want to exploit the customer. We want the customer to come back. Mm. We want the customer. And if the customer comes back and says, this is faulty, we want to change that immediately and, uh, and also learn what was wrong so that we can fix it the next time. So that's how, that's a very simple practical example of how we have approached business. We have put culture at the heart of business, not on, on the side. Uh, of a very transactional approach to business, a very materialistic, greedy, exploitative, extractive approach to business, which is in the core curriculum of business schools all over the world, Arti. Yeah. So can you imagine now, this is where I, I cry inside that one of our own Jane students goes to a famous business school, including Harvard. Yeah. And nobody ever acknowledges the culture that they bring to the table, the, the knowledge that they already have, the intangible knowledge, the tacit knowledge. You started talking about the ancestors in Australia. They had so much wisdom, mm. so much intangible knowledge, right? Mm. None of that is acknowledged when our, our own students go into these business schools. Yeah. And indirectly, they start to suppress it by saying, no, 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 that, that must be surely old-fashioned. It's backward. It's about uh, dogma rather than science. It's not, it's not really science. It's dogma. Well, ours is science first. Our tradition is science first. It's about truth. It's about wisdom. It's not about rituals. Rituals are a way, are a way of re reminding ourselves of those truths, of that wisdom. Yeah. yeah. But it's really that so. There you go. Thank you so much for that. That was really lovely to listen to. And yeah, culture at the heart of the business. Oh, yeah. And you were going to tell us about your second book. Yeah, so uh, another book, I mean, I've, got, I've done lots of things, but this, yes. is, uh, this one came out in 2018. It's called Reinventing Accounting and Finance Education for a caring, inclusive, and sustainable planet. So, so again, you know, if our chapter is about decolonizing the curriculum, then the blueprint of that for business education has been charted out here for the whole world to learn from, right? And, and I've done one extra thing in there which is a lot of the current decolonizing debate is, is driven by anger and frustration about the colonial colonization of the past and et cetera, right? Yeah. But ours, what my approach is doing is, is taking some of that history, but at the same time embracing the bigger challenge we have today, which is about sustainability and climate change. 
and connecting the two dots. So most people who do decolonizing curriculum are not connecting climate change with the past, you know. But what we are saying is that we can do both together and, and the way to do it is by respecting one another, by having a culture of non-greed and non-materialism, uh, by uh, you know learning from each other and respecting the planet uh, and animals and nature, and not seeing a boundary between humans and animals or a boundary between humans and nature. So removing that boundary in our thinking so as to be whole and to be holistic. That's another important development in education, holistic education, education, which is for the whole person, you know, Um, and and that by the whole person, we mean mind, body and spirit, not now, if you look at a lot of Western education, it is a very kind of what you would call a tangible type of education. So there is no there's no room in there for spirit at all. And in fact, even the body is treated as biology rather than, you know, uh, that actually the body is integral to our learning process and the mind, the state of mind is in, integral to our learning process. So. Yeah. That's so many things to think about within, yeah, what you were saying. Yeah, but again, it comes back to how you started this chapter, Arti. You started by respecting ancestors. And that's all I'm doing. I mean, all what I have done is because of my ancestors, our ancestors. I mean, my father, I just now, the more I look into his life, I mean, he he got polio at the age of five. Yeah, so he was walking with a limp. But that disability, he never allowed to stop him from... Mm -hmm. And he developed, he grew up in a small village in India, but he developed such a love for our culture yeah. and our art as well. I mean, he he was he was an art director. Not, not only was he a community leader, he was an art director. He was a stage director. I mean, the amount of infusion, you know, every festival, yeah. he, he imported some of the best groups from India to perform in Mombasa. So we got an injection of wisdom during that festival, right? Now, otherwise, you know, in those days, travel was not easy. Travel was very expensive, right? We didn't got, but in this town, we were able to learn from the whole world. Why? Because of the vision of our leaders, the sacrifice of our forefathers, you know? And, and we are all kind of, uh, you know, respectful of that. And uh, and we are now beginning this pandemic and this process of reflection is helping us to understand that actually it's not all our doing. It's also our inheritance. You know? mm-hmm. And, you know, like other things I have done alongside this, like I've been the chairman of, of, of a, a, a $25 million art gallery Uh, which is part of the Tate network. Tate is one of the most famous art galleries in the world. And as a board chairman, I was involved in the strategic thinking about artistic development, about uh, representation of culture, etc. 
and through that also, you know, I am participating in my local community like you are doing. And, uh, you know, they come to see that the Jain culture is also a leadership culture. The Jain culture also is what you would call um, subliminal. We don't go out to convert the world, yeah. but we live through our actions, you know. We live through our actions. And, uh, but, but when I look at our community and uh, I, on Facebook, when I read people's stories, I see this everywhere, wherever we go. Mm. We are leaders. We bring new ideas. We assimilate. We fit in. And we are kind and gentle and not greedy. And, uh, you know, and we are enriching wherever we go, we are enriching the society. Even when we succeed in business, we take others forward with us. You know, it's not a selfish success, but it's a, it's a joint success. So, and the professions and the arts and, you know, so it's wonderful to see. And that's also why I admire what you're doing. So from that corner in Australia, you're speaking to the world and you are in a sense carrying that ray of tradition, you know, and you're giving voice to marginal voices. In uh, that way, actually to learn different cultures is not easy, Arti. No. It takes, it's, you know, each culture has its own language, its own history, and uh, nobody can master. In fact, I, I, I'm not a master of, of my own culture either. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I've learned bits about it. And uh, through that, I'm trying to share it. Yeah. I mean, I've done other things in, in the chapter in the sense like when I first came to Britain and I saw for young people, there was no platform to learn about Jain culture. I started an organization called the Young Jains, which is now a global movement. Um, and there the idea was that living in the West, what does this culture mean to us? How can this way of life enrich us, you know, and how can we interpret it uh, in the context and the time that we're living in. So we did lots of activities around that, a lot of training and events and etc, etc. And, uh, you know, it's more, what, 30, almost 30 years since we started, yeah, more than 30 years since we started the organization and it's, it's flourishing. So, you know, things like that. And then I also uh, was editor of the Global Jane Spirit magazine, which again uh, was in the English language, but trying to draw from that wisdom and communicate that wisdom to all corners of the world. We, it, it used to go to Australia as well. Uh, um, and, you know, people used to love reading about their culture in a modern scientific kind of language and uh, to understand and draw from it, you know, and get inspired from it. So. And so, Atul, with all of these initiatives you've been a part of, have they all sort of aimed at one goal, which is to decolonize the curriculum? Is it all drawing towards? Uh, no. Okay. No. Uh, this is more of a recent uh, thing that I'm doing. It's taken, you know, colonization, I mean, 
you know the story of the Aborigines. Today, the Aborigines are virtually destroyed. They are marginalized. Many of them have become alcoholics. Um, all, you know, so much devastation and damage left in the wake, right? Now, the same kind of thing has happened to different cultures in different ways, you know, maybe not to that extent. Uh, and so it's, it takes a long time for you to develop the confidence to be able to take pride in your culture in a very colonized environment, in a very colonized education curriculum, you are always um, actually, uh, you know, I'm just a human being. I'm, I'm not really Jane. Uh, you know, I'm just a human being who tries to be good and nice because we keep on hiding. We are forced to hide. We are, we are forced to fit in. We are forced to be, yeah, to, to be same as everyone else, you know. But actually, there is a distinctive core to us. And uh, that distinctive core is a part of our own ancestry, our heritage. And modern events show more than ever how timeless our wisdom is, you know, yeah. and how, how much we have to offer the world and ourselves and our young people and future generations and how lucky we are to have been in, to have been born into this uh, culture and tradition yes um and tell us actually before you tell us more about the work um i was recently asked this question so in a bit of a snapshot when i'm trying to tell people where i'm from or you know, if, if the question is ever asked, where are you from? It's a difficult answer to sort of provide, but have um, my answer usually is I'm Kenyan by birth, I'm Indian by ethnicity, and I'm Australian by naturalization. So I have a bit of, um, you know, the Kenyan roots and the Indian roots. And then someone um, posed the question, so what roots do you feel strongly attached to? And I thought that was a really interesting question given we are second, third generation Kenyan to then go, actually, that's true. Because within my sort of upbringing and everything, I know there was a point in time where I was a real, not a, not a, an overt rebel, but I had, questions and I was challenging things that I knew and it was very much coming from that Indian culture and the stereotypes and yeah um, whatnot but I thought it was a very interesting question I'd like to pose that question to you given you're born in Kenya you've got that Indian um, the Jane roots what, what would you yeah say about the mixed root system Arthi, you ask fantastic questions. And again, I would say that when people ask about roots, mm. they are looking for a physical identity. Mm. Almost like, are you Kenyan? Are you Australian? Yeah. Or are you Indian, right? Yeah. Now, every human being has multiple identities. And one identity is a non-physical identity, which is like your, your, your history, your stories, your ancestry, your, um, your religion, your beliefs, etc. right? Mm -hmm. 
which is called the intangible, intangible culture or intangible identity. And this is where I find that, and this is why I'm doing more and more work around the Jain identity, because when you look at Jainism, it's a very universalist tradition, right? And in that sense, that becomes an identity which is, uh, which, which is independent of time and space. You can carry it with you wherever you go. And, and it's also an, in, and, and the intangible identity is the best identity because when you die, you're going to leave your physical identity anyway. You're going to leave your physical country, etc., etc. So isn't it better to identify with your, your, your own stories, your narratives, your, your beliefs, uh, you know, your history, heritage, than a physical space. Mm. So that is where, and, and in a way, like you, you know, you mentioned rebel, I rebel. All in, in a way, rebelling is the nature of teenagehood, you know, and rebelling becomes very critical for our people because of that migration journey and because of the big cultural conflict between our Indian heritage and a Western mindset and culture right mm. so there is a big conflict in that so in and 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 we have got this conflict as growing up as a teenager so all that so i almost like i gave up jainism completely in my teenage years even though i was dunked deep into it right yeah but but then i kind of rediscovered it mm -hmm. through my own journey and through creating a peer group of young Jains who we got together and we asked the questions together. We didn't have the answers, yeah. but we got together to ask the questions and that empowered us. And now so many other organizations have sprung out of young Jains. Young Jains in America is extremely strong. There's young Jains chapters in Australia. There's young Jains even in India, starting from the UK, it has gone back to India. There's young Jains chapters in India. So what people are discovering is that as young people, you know, and you think of Greta, for example, you know, now she's become a global celebrity, but Greta's idealism is, is giving her that strength and courage to be bold, right? And, and young people, and their idealism is very, very important to respect and to, to work with and to nurture, you know. Uh, um, so that's what I do. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, now tell us more about your work in the decolonization space. Um, what you're currently doing, what your vision is, Oh, I mean, <laughs> I have a very large vision, but a very small budget, unfortunately. Yeah. And and remember, religion generally is off the agenda when it comes to a Western university and science. But the problem is the word religion, right? The word religion does not mean the same thing in different cultures, right? Like people ask me, what is your Bible? We don't have a Bible. We have a large number of books and scriptures. 
And we also have a very large oral tradition, which is not even written down, mm-hmm. right? We don't have one God. We have many gods, yeah. right? things like that. So, so in a sense, you know, one of the battles I face when I talk about in decolorization, in my academic uh, peer group, is the moment the word any type of religion is mentioned, oh, he's taking us backwards. He's trying to convert us. He's trying to. So it's such a gross misunderstanding, right? So in some sense, uh, battling that has to be done at many different levels. And one of the big challenges, Arthi, if you can help me with this, maybe through your podcast and uh, video as it goes around the world, is I would like Jane's to, to support the work I do. I hardly get any funding from the community. It's almost as if I'm a soldier of my, on my own kind of resources and merit. And I need that resource and funding to be able to grow the scale of the operation, to in, work with more younger Jane's and help enable this transformation of the curriculum. I'm, and I've just been appointed as an advisor to Oxford University on ethical investment. So I have, I'm involved in many different, in different arenas, but I always am fighting for resources because the outside world doesn't even begin to understand where I come from. However, Arti, our community is blessed with huge resources. Huge, you know, billionaires come by the dozen in our community. You know, they come by the dozen. So we have that. So I kind of find it very paradoxical that people are not coming to me and saying, you know, how can we help you advance this agenda? And maybe it's because of their own misunderstanding of Jainism. Maybe they have a very narrow. Why? Yeah. Why do you think that is if it's like we? you know, the philanthropy side of things and the philosophical, like why, yeah. Is it the misunderstandings only or what? I think we, we have lost an appreciation of our intangible heritage. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, this idea that as a community, we need to influence the education syllabus is a very new idea, even for our educated members of the community, because they don't even see, they say, oh, so long as my son or daughter gets all A's, I've done my bit, you know? And uh, and then if they go to Oxford University or Harvard University, yay, well done, and that's it. But what about the content of the curriculum, right? How are we influencing the content? And then if we are proud of our culture, we'll go to a Saturday school or we'll send our children to a Saturday school. But then they will also experience that difference that in the classroom, they have to behave in a certain way. Then on a Saturday, they behave in a different way and they learn about their culture and history. So the integration is not happening, right? Mm -hmm. So there are many areas in which we need to work and we need to understand and value intellectuals, which we are not doing. In the old days, if we look at our ancestry, we had tremendous respect for intellectuals, tremendous respect. 
we used to uh, finance them. We used to collect their manuscripts. We used to publish their manuscripts. Uh, artists, the amount of money we've spent on artists in our tradition mm -hmm. and the, the new kind of commissions we have done with artists. Today, I can't see that. I can't see us valuing artists and telling, come, do some new Jane art. You know, do some new art and here's 10,000 pounds for the project or 20,000 pounds. Do you see what I mean? You just come from an art gallery. But what, if we have all that artistic history and tradition, mm -hmm. and you've been to, I'm sure, India and seen our sculptures and temples and painting, why, why are we not doing it today? Why, we have even more resources than we had before. So there are many ways in which the community needs to be challenged. Mm. The community needs to be inspired. Yeah. And also, I must say, greed has crept in mm. to our community. Yeah. So we are now, you know, if we have 1 million, we want 10. If we have 10, we want 100. If we want 100, we want a billion. So, and then we want to keep it like that. Mm. So that is completely against our principle of aparigra. Aparigra says that when you possess, you become possessed. Aparigra is a whole science of detachment from money. I'm, I write in my ethical finance book that actually money is a means to an end. Don't get too attached and possessive of money. Mm -hmm. So we have also along the way become colonized and lost our, our, our culture and traditions. Yeah. And um, I thought the other thing I was wondering about, just as I mentioned before, to me, culture and religion were two separate, separate entities with a bit, you know, so like a Venn diagram, there's a bit of a gray area midpoint. Is that something you think might also be a common thread, right? Where people are going. Oh, absolutely. Very common. In fact, I would say for young people, mm. Arti, most young people in our community yeah. don't want to identify as Jains at all, yeah. right? Because yeah. they have a very particular perception of it, a very religious perception, yeah. a perception of a, a rather than a yes tradition, a no tradition. Don't do this. Don't do that. Yes. But actually, when you look at the science, <coughs> it's a yes tradition because the science says, be kind. Yeah. Be loving be respectful, be generous, right? So it's actually first and foremost a yes tradition. Yeah. And it is a science for our age, you know, in terms of climate change, uh, mm -hmm. inequality, um, non-violence, so many aspects. And it just, I suppose to prove you right, I don't tell people I'm a Jane. In fact, I have a very set sort of perception of it's either yes or no. And my reason for not saying that is I don't believe that I practice Jainism in the way that we were told this is what you have to do. And, um, you know, all of those sort of the rituals and praying to God. And, and as a result, I don't say that I'm Jain, but I do say I'm born into that religion. And even that in itself is a different statement, right? I'm born into the religion. Um, I am no longer sort of, yes, I'm a part of it, but I'm not a practicing. Yeah. 
Jane. Yeah, so that's again so very honest of you, Arti. And in a way, that's why these conversations are so important because none of us are perfect. And in a way, through the honesty, we can hopefully get more people to be honest with themselves, you know, and admit that, you know, that we have challenges, we have confusion, we have doubts, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, we need guidance sometimes and we need learning and we need education. But, uh, yeah, I mean, these are the kinds of challenges. But at a deeper level, there is a colonization of the mind, Aarti, which is which has got so many layers. It's like the onion, you know, which has got so many layers. Mm. In so many ways, we have become colonized that we, we are beginning to distrust our own ancestry, our own religion, our, you know, and, uh, and even if we begin to trust, we to unpick those layers of the onion takes time, you know, and, and takes patience and takes kind of uh, respect and love. So, and community as well. So if you're close to a community, then you can support one another. If you're far from a community, then you can't, you know? So all those things uh, come into it. But in a way, the biggest, you know, we talk about <clears throat> young people inheriting lots of money from their parents or whatever. But the more priceless inheritance for any young person is culture and tradition. It's not money. Money will can come and go just like that. And money cannot buy happiness, as you know. And so much scientific evidence shows that. So therefore, therefore, I ask all young people, not just Jane, all young people to, to learn about their own history, including warts and all. Because you know, in the history, there may be violence, there may be colonization. Doesn't matter, but at least to understand where you come from, mm. yeah, and then uh, also try to see some of the good aspects of that and live by those virtues, mm. yeah. because that's what will make us become a sustainable society. I, you know, I've just finished teaching a course on sustainable business, mm. and the role of culture hardly played any role in the curriculum. But throughout, when I was teaching it, I emphasized to the students, it starts with you. And then when I'm marking the final essays, mm. I find some students actually admitting that the course, they always thought sustainability was about big business or about carbon, uh, zero carbon or about da, da, da. Yeah. But then they realize actually it begins with me, begins with you everything about sustainability begins with you. So then suddenly they see that connection that even business is a part of you. When you work for a business, there's no boundary between you and the business. You are the business and the business is you, yeah. right? The way we have been trained in the West is, oh, it's just a job, you know? You can move from one company to another. Mm, that's right. It's so interesting. And like you said earlier, um, the idea of kindness, compassion, understanding, respect, that's very universal. And the minute you say culture or you say religion, that just instantly groups people in separate entities, different culture, different religion, whereas the other elements are all cohesive 
and bonding. Yeah, so Arti, that you are so right. So we have to be very careful about what we say to what audience. Yeah. And and sometimes we don't even have to say anything. We can just act, you know, come come and have a picnic with me, you know, or <clears throat> you know, just like that and leave it like that. So that's why in my academic work, I've become quite sensitive yeah. to how far I can go. And um, and then I just like, for example, the publishers, I've got, you know, these books are published all over the world. My publishers absolutely love what I write. Yeah. yeah. So then that way the book is there. Yeah. Right? If you want to, you can read it. Yeah. I'm not forcing it on anybody. Yeah. But the, the, the ideas are there and the science is there. Uh, and then sometimes I point it to people. You know, I've done a lot of BBC broadcasting. I just sent you, uh, I did this 1500 mile masala tour of Britain where I tried to show the depth of Indian culture in Britain to the media because the media don't understand depth. They're, they often look at people very shallow because they have no time to go deep. So I use that to provide that depth, you know, and it was published in the Guardian newspaper. So things like that, you know, so I've done many, I mean, I've written another book called Celebrating Diversity, yeah. which is, yeah, which is actually about integration and assimilation. That was going to be one of my questions. Okay. I'm, you <laughs> mentioned assimilating quite a few times and I wanted to know, what do you, yeah, those two words, assimilating and integration, what are they to you? They are important. They are very important. They are very important to my peace of mind, to my happiness, my fulfillment. Um, and, uh, and not only I, I'm saying that in words, but I'm saying that in actions. Like this book, this book is for the whole of Britain. You know, that how as a country we can enjoy the power of difference and harness it and learn from difference, right? Mm. So it's almost a roadmap for the whole country. So here's me being a small citizen of the country, but using my education and experience and knowledge to give the whole country a larger blueprint mm -hmm. about how to live with difference rather than suppress it or fee feel overpowered by it or become afraid of difference, right? Mm -hmm. So in that same way, uh, similarly, you know, I'm a, I'm a father. Uh, I have two, uh, two children. Well, they're not children anymore. My <laughs> son is just graduating from university and my daughter is uh, a marketing executive. Then I have, I'm, I have a neighborhood. I live in a close in uh, Colchester in England. So mm -hmm. how I interact with the neighbors uh, I told you about my, uh, you know, I'm active in the local Indian community. I'm active in the national Jain and the global Jain community. I'm an advisor to the American uh, Jain community on academic studies in Jainism. So I'm a member of that uh, advisory board. Uh, and they have now spending millions of dollars on professorships of Jainism in various American universities. And I'm working with them. And, I, you know, and I've been doing that for a long time. I've been working with scholars of Jainism for a long time uh, at the University of London. We've just op opened another chair at Ghent University. So, and I've traveled all over the world as well. So, you know, 
in through that through those con contexts again i try to take the tradition forward make it more visible make it more accessible make it more understandable um and uh yeah so i'm i'm fortunate i'm really blessed you know by my father my upbringing my mother is still alive and uh oh she is such a joy and uh, arti you've not really mentioned gender but one of the other projects i'm working on is around our migration history i think i sent you some videos yeah. about that yeah, yeah. and uh, what I, what we are discovering with that migration history is that in our community the woman's story is is not very visible we are more of a patriarchal community but when we listen to those women's stories yeah. oh, Yeah. the jewels that come out the nuggets is just unbelievable so but generally every person's story is fascinating whether man woman child adult whatever so we we've, we've started but what we're doing like this conversation we're going into depth so we're going into so how did you migrate what were your experiences what were your challenges setbacks uh, how did you battle poverty etc etc and then through that all the courage comes out the compassion comes out the duty and dedication to family you know when you spoke to your grandmother in those days there was it wasn't like oh today i feel like going out to watch the uh, sit to the cinema or, or you know so i leave my children at home and i'll go to the cinema and put my makeup on it was there was a duty my family is my first duty and i need to do everything to give them the best of myself right those kinds of simple values are the values of the future we have become too complicated as a society you know we need to keep those values simple and then repeat and be consistent about them and that's fine and we're going to go from this planet anyway so why try to be over aggressive over ambitious over greedy no simple gentle and then you leave a light footprint by example you know that oh that person you know i admire what she did for me or you know and i think at all it's interesting you bring about that point of simplicity um and what is simple again that's a perception of the individual or you know a lot of the times you go through the com the complexity to find the simplicity if that makes sense you if it's simple to begin with or or complex to begin with i don't know if i'm even making sense or not but there is there is chaos and there is complexity to then go back to the simplicity to actually go yeah okay that we just want it you know in a simplistic nature but is it something you have to go through that complexity in order to find that simplicity um very again another fascinating question arthi and that question also comes out of the colonization yeah in our curriculum so the colonization in our co curriculum makes us more confused and makes us more sort of conflicted even you know yeah. about what what is truth what is fairness in fact i mean if you reflect on your own education arti how often were you taught 
about what are the good values to live by. Actually, when you really look at the Western education system, ethics and, and values have been put, if, if they are there, they're put on a side box, almost a little box, which might be citizenship studies or religious studies. But actually, when we look at life, as we become older, we realize that ethics and values are the core of life. And therefore, they should be the core of our education curriculum. I mean, I give you an example, business ethics. Business ethics, for a long time, was never taught in the university, including places like Harvard. Then it has now come in because of pressure and environment and change and all that. But even now, the way it is taught is one subject. And I, I recently went to the Harvard university website and I looked at their curriculum for their famous world famous MBA program and ethics is not at the core mm. when it should be the core so 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 the kind of confusion and complexity that you're talking about yeah part of it unfortunately has been deliberate and that's also why this whole decolonizing the curriculum Become so, so we can, in fact, when we decolonize the curriculum, we can actually have universal values, uh, which are part of, say, the universal human rights. And we can say that these should be at the core of, the, of, of any school anywhere in the world, uh, you know, and respect for nature, respect for people, respect for culture, etc., respect for parents. And we reinforce these same values then we really create a sustainable society mm. because then people begin to understand that actually, you know, my values are my identity and my values can travel anywhere in the world. My values are what I will leave behind when I go. I, you know, if I leave behind money, that's nothing, you know, that's material. Yeah, there you go. Well, Atul, thank you so, so very much for taking your time to generously share your learnings and, yeah, sort of plant seeds of thought. Um, have I, is there anything else you've wanted to say and I haven't embarked or posed a question in that area? Um. I, I think you've covered a lot of things. I would just say to people, start to take an interest in your own history, in your own culture. Uh, start to question, definitely question. You know, you don't have to accept what you're told. Yeah. But your own history and understanding of that history and culture will give you a deeper self-confidence uh, and a better ability to have to find meaning and purpose in life and when you have a clarity of meaning and purpose then so many other things will become easier in life for you so and which doesn't matter which culture you come from you know or which tradition or whatever but try to figure that out for yourself what you stand for what gives you meaning and purpose then your life will become easier. Beautiful. 
Thank you very, very much again. And for everyone that will be listening to this conversation once it's uploaded, thank you all. And if, feel free to share, with, share it with anyone that might resonate with it and get them to share it as well. So it's all about connecting people and listening to their stories. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah. No worries.